Hello. Uh, this is my very first time in Sweden, so thank you all so much for having me here. I'm really excited. Um, so I often start off my talks with this image here. How many of you are familiar with it? Next to no one. Okay, this is a really awesome image. Okay, so this image here is taken by one of my favorite spacecrafts, uh, a spacecraft that's going to the outer reaches of our solar system and beyond. Um, and it's a spacecraft called Voyager 1. And if you can see in the image that tiny little pale blue speck of a pixel there, that's Earth as seen from about 4 billion miles away. Uh, so that's where you can find me if you need me. <laughs> but the reason why I love images like these so much is because to me it shows how space exploration often changes our view of ourselves and our place in the universe. But similarly, I think we should change how we view space exploration. I often talk about hacking space exploration, but I'm really talking about hacking space observation because that's really the relationship that most of us have with space exploration. We're often watching government agencies and astronauts exploring on behalf of us, but we ourselves aren't doing much exploring. And this actually relates to my own personal story because back in 2008, I was watching this great documentary called When We Left Earth. And it was this awesome documentary about NASA during the early days and in the 1950s and 1960s and how they were trying to figure out how to send people into space and they didn't quite yet know. And I was so incredibly inspired by this documentary that I decided to send NASA, someone at NASA an email on a whim saying that I was a huge fan of what they were doing and if they ever needed someone like me, someone without a science background, my degrees in graphic design, um, that I was here. <laughs> um, it was totally this geeky fangirl moment and I never really expected to hear back from them. But serendipitously, I was able to actually get a job at NASA from that email and, <laughs> and it completely changed my life. And one of the things that I found so inspiring about this documentary and why it motivated me to really reach out to NASA on a whim was because I realized that these rocket scientists that I had been looking at weren't really the rocket scientists I had always imagined. They were kind of more space hackers in a sense. The average age at NASA during the 1960s was about 26. The average age at NASA now is around 49 or so, so it's changed quite a bit. Um, but the thing that was so cool was the fact that they didn't really yet know everything about space exploration. They were still figuring it out. And so I wanted to actually just share a clip uh, from this documentary that I loved so much um, when they were trying to figure out how to send all these unmanned rockets up and to eventually send, hopefully, a man to the moon. To beat the Soviets, NASA must launch a man into Earth orbit. Only rockets can go fast enough. We knew nothing about rocketry. We knew nothing about spacecraft. We knew nothing about orbits. I saw a lot of rockets launched. I'd say that somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of them failed. A lot of them came up off the pad and went the opposite direction. Some of them got halfway off the pad and blew up. Some of them got to 10,000 feet and turned the other way and blew up. The whole thing crumbled and blew up. It looked like an atomic bomb went off almost over our heads. We got a big kick out of watching the Mercury astronauts. It was great looking at their eyes. The 
we're looking at this thing and looking at each other and deciding we want to go back and talk to the engineers a little more before we go further. <laughs> so this is what I love so much. It actually uh, reminded me of this image here. Um, <laughs> that, uh, they didn't quite yet know how to explore space, that they were still figuring it out. And so that's, again, why I sent this email to them saying, you know, well, I don't know anything about space. I want to work at NASA. <laughs> um, so I worked at NASA very briefly. And when I left, I created spacehack.org. And spacehack.org is essentially a directory of ways in which anyone with or without a science background can actively contribute to space exploration. So this is anything from discovering galaxies to building robots to uh, building satellites, all different types of things that anyone can do. And so the types of projects on uh, Spacehack are ones like Galaxy Zoo. Galaxy Zoo is essentially an online interface where anyone can classify and potentially even discover galaxies that no one has discovered before. And people have actually done this. Um, and it's just great. It's this really uh, easy interface. And you get a pretty image of a galaxy, and it asks you some basic questions about it. But sometimes you might be looking at something that looks a little bit strange and you can investigate it further and you might actually end up discovering an entirely new galaxy, which is pretty cool. Uh, there's also other um, projects like the Austrian Space Forum. Uh, and the Austrian Space Forum's essentially this organization that is trying to figure out how we might one day colonize Mars. So they're doing a lot of research into astronaut suits and how we might discover different types of life forms. And the cool thing about the Austrian Space Forum is that they need help from all different types of people, um, lawyers, writers, designers, you name it. Um, and so it's a, a really great project to get involved in, and they need people from all around the world. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty cool one. They also do really cool things like exploring ice caves in Austria uh, <laughs> to try and search for microbes the same way we might be doing that on Mars one day. Other cool projects are ones like Citizens in Space that essentially want you to develop or design payloads for satellites, um, specifically ones in astrobiology, things like trying to test out if different life forms could, uh, could survive in space or how they might be um, interacted with differently, I guess, in a, in a space-like environment. So when I created SpaceHack, I started realizing that there was essentially already a lot of open science stuff out there, but no one was really doing anything interesting with it. If you think back to the Galaxy Zoo project, all of that galaxy data was already open and available, but it wasn't until someone actually built an interface to it that it really became accessible for all different types of people to sort of collaborate and participate in. And so born out of this frustration that no one was really doing anything interesting with all this sort of science stuff that's out there, came an event called Science Hack Day. And Science Hack Day is an event where scientists, designers, developers, and all different types of people get into the same physical space to see what they can rapidly prototype with science in 24 consecutive hours. So this is an image from the Science Hack Day in San Francisco. And the mission of Science Hack Day is essentially just to get excited and make things with science. So it's making something silly, or it can be making something serious. It doesn't really matter. And it reminds me sort of this quote that I love so much, that at the heart of anything good, there should be a kernel of something undefinable. And if you can define it or claim to be able to define it, then in a sense, you've missed the point. And so to me, it's 
sort of all around this concept of exploring the unknown. And this is something that science fiction has been traditionally really great at. They've, uh, science fiction authors have often talked about ideas before they have existed. Arthur C. Clarke famously wrote about geostationary satellites before they were in existence. And I think while science fiction has been really awesome at this, hacking is also beginning to be really good at this, sort of prototyping ideas and, and things before they don't, before they actually exist in the world. And so I just wanted to share with all of you some of the weird uh, <laughs> things that come out of Science Hack Days. Uh, this is a hack essentially of a lamp that's supposed to light up every time an asteroid passes by the Earth. So in a sense, it's sort of like a, a near-death lamp. <laughs> um, you could have it on your desk and then like dive under your desk and freak out all of your coworkers or something. Another fun one was uh, this. This was the Dianacary. Essentially, this is a cocktail of extracted strawberry DNA. Um, <laughs> this is something that you can usually do fairly easily, extracting DNA, but sometimes it requires using materials that aren't edible. So someone made a fully edible cocktail of extracted strawberry DNA, um, and it's up on Instructables in case you want to know how to make it, but um, fair warning, it tastes disgusting. <laughs> it's a lot of alcohol. Another fun one was uh, a group of hackers wanted to sort of look into subatomic particle collisions. And typically, subatomic particle collisions are visualized like this. Um, I'm not a particle physicist, so I won't begin to explain everything in this slide, but I think like the four green lines and the four red towers in the image, I guess the one of the towers got cut off, um, they represent four high-energy electrons. So a group of hackers wanted to know, what if instead of visualizing what subatomic particle collisions look like, what if we could hear what they sound like? And so they created this really cool hack called the particle wind chime that took subatomic particle collision data and mapped it to sounds. So if you could imagine what that uh, might sound like. That's sort of what they played with. The cool thing about this is that afterwards, it sort of went on to be looked into as a type of augmented diagnostic tool for accelerator laboratories. So if you could imagine being at the Large Hadron Collider uh, very late at night, which would be very cool, um, but if you could imagine being there and being surrounded by a ton tons of screens telling you how the accelerator is doing, but you could also get used to how the accelerator sounds and get used to if something sounds a bit off. That's sort of what uh, it went on to be looked into. We also had a group of hackers at Science Hack Day who wanted to play with synesthesia. And synesthesia is essentially something where the wires between your different senses get crossed. So some people with synesthesia report associating certain colors with certain letters, or if they hear a loud sound, they might actually visually see a ripple across their vision. So a group of hackers wanted to simulate what it was like to experience this. So they created this really creepy mask called synesthesia. Um, this is probably the creepiest hack I've ever seen. Um, synesthesia essentially simulates synesthesia. And how it does this is they took a bunch of vibrating speakers and they attached it to someone's face. And uh, because it was a hack day and they only had uh, 24 hours or so to prototype this, um, supposedly, the only open pattern they could find for a mask was one for a gimp mask. Um, so that's why it looks uh, so disturbing. Um, so they stayed up all night sewing this together and sewed in all the vibrating speakers, and then they wired it all up to an Arduino and a webcam. So as someone navigates different parts of the room and different parts of the room are lighter or darker, different parts of your face will start vibrating. Um, so in this sense, you can begin to feel sight, uh, which is um, a very odd experience. 
Another fun hack that I really loved is this. Uh, this is essentially um, a, someone wanted to make a typeface in which all of the letters would have equal wind drag. So what you're, <laughs> what you're looking at is essentially a makeshift wind tunnel. And someone actually recorded the wind drag of each individual letter and then weighted each individual letter so that all of the letters would have equal wind drag. So if you want a typeface in which all of the letters have equal wind drag, it looks something like this. Um, I have no idea how this is useful at all. Um, but this was a, a physicist who was playing with typography, which is pretty cool. Um, my all-time favorite uh, hack, though, out of a science hack day was someone who wanted to create a device that would detect when he needed to shave, uh, a beard detector of sorts, um, which I wasn't quite sure about. So what this person actually did is they took a uh, USB microscope and he held it up to his face and he got this really gross image of all the lines on his face. It's very appetizing, isn't it? Um, and he wrote some basic code and used an open computer vision library and was able to create this sort of uh, beard detector of sorts. If you can't see in the back, it says, <laughs> no beard found, no beard found, and then it's drawing lines around his stubble. Um, now, when I saw this, I thought to myself, well, I'm not really sure what this has to do with science, but you know, we don't ever put any limitations on what people want to make. Um, but sitting in the audience and seeing this hack demoed was a particle physicist. And when the particle physicist saw this hack demoed, he said to himself, wow, that's actually a genius way for how to detect cosmic rays in the cloud chamber. Um, which sounds <laughs> completely ridiculous until you see what cosmic rays in a cloud chamber looks like. Um, and so following Science Hack Day, this particle physicist wrote an entire proposal for how to detect cosmic rays in a cloud chamber using the original code in the open computer vision library someone had used to detect if he needed to shave or not. <laughs> so this is what I love so much about hacking and hack days. It's really just about creating sparks for future ideas and future collaborations and um, just really awesome things. So Science Hack Day is not um, an organization. Um, it's really not owned by anyone. Uh, so I can't represent Science Hack Day any more than an, another person. Um, essentially, it's just an open set of I, guidelines, I guess, for anyone to organize a Science Hack Day in their city. So this is an image from Science Hack Day in Chicago where we got to hack the Adler Planetarium, which was pretty cool. Um, I also had the... Uh, ability to go to Nairobi, uh, where we did a lot of like robotics hacking and fun stuff. And I wanted to sort of ask all of you, since I have you here, there hasn't been a science hack day yet in Sweden, and you're all really awesome, and you like weird things, because I've seen what's been going on at this conference. <laughs> so I wanted to ask if all of you might be interested in creating a science hack day in Sweden and giving me a really good reason to come back here for a second time. <laughs> it would be a lot of fun and the types of weird things that you might make here might top some of those things um, so all of the information for how anyone can organize the science hack day is at sciencehackday.com so feel free to check that out so I sort of wanted to end with the idea that in, in space exploration you can sort of be searching for a lot of things. You could be searching for exoplanets or extraterrestrials or galaxies. But to me, it's really the search for experimentation that I think is so incredibly precious. And I think we found it through hacking science and hacking space exploration. Thank you.